Episode 20 of the Fuel Hotel Marketing Podcast. I am your host, Stuart Butler, and I am joined today by the solitary Pete DeMeo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Everybody else was busy today. They're serving our awesome clients, which we cannot fault them for, but that just means that you're stuck with the us two for today's topic, which is going to be what, Pete? Today's topic is content marketing and why it matters. Yeah, it's obviously a big big thing in all of marketing is content. We'll get into that, get into how you can create great content, why it matters, like you said. We'll give you some ideas and even some examples about some folks that are doing a great job with content. But before we do that, let's jump into In the News. So this first article that I found was really interesting, came from T News, and it talks about the Aloft brand, which is a Starwood prop group, part of the style group, Aloft are putting in voice-activated devices in their rooms. They've done this, they're piloting in two properties. Um, unfortunately, I'm going to an Aloft this weekend in Greenville, South Carolina. That is not one of the two properties, unfortunately. I was kind of excited when, I, when I read the headline. Yeah, but basically they're, what they're doing is they're putting the iPad in every room that has its own custom app on its lockdowns. So you can't do a lot of other things, but Siri is going to work as your voice activated commands for things like opening the curtains or changing the temperature or changing the lights and things like that. So um, this is pretty cool use of technology. What are your thoughts on this? I think it'd be interesting to see how it's actually employed. My concern is it's kind of cheesy because, you know, people are either going to want to use it or they're not going to use it. And, it seems to me one of those things where from an operational perspective, hey, I told my curtains to open and they're not opening. I turned the, I couldn't get the lights to turn on because Siri wasn't listening properly. I kind of want to see how it rolls out. It, to me, it's, it's questionable. Yeah, and I, you know, I think the data will bear out, you know, how people use it. I think there are some some concerns that people have related to security. You know, are people going to worry about a device listening to them that's not their device, listening to their conversations? Um, I would see it as my kids would probably love it, and it would probably drive me crazy because mm -hmm. they'd be going lights up, lights down, you know, curtains yeah. open, curtains closed. Um, well, so, so what happens when you have an iPhone? And you're asking your phone something. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just ask that. Yeah. Will Siri and the alternate Siri fight each other? Yeah, I think to me this sounds more like a bridge solution, right? It's yeah. not the final technology that's going to be voice activation in all hotel rooms, which we'll probably get to eventually. I think to me this is just kind of a, a tiptoe in that direction. I don't know if this is a permanent solution, but it's pretty neat. I'm glad Aloft's doing it. Again, I wish it was... The property I'm going to be staying at this weekend, but it's not. So. Yeah, it's pretty cool. All right, what's next? So next one is, this one's really interesting. This is on hotel, hotels-online.com. It is a report where if you, it's basically titled, you know, guests who are engaged have a 40% likelihood of returning to that property. Uh, it's actually a study done by Local Measure, and basically what it did is look at you know, guests who come to a property, check in, stay, leave, and are never engaged during their stay period, compared to people who checked in, stayed at the property, were engaged throughout their stay before checking out. 
they had a better experience and improved return rate by 40%. Yeah, and this is a pretty legitimate study. I mean, they did it over a lot of properties over a long period of time, looked at a lot of different types of folks. So, I mean, I really think the data in here is pretty solid. And it makes sense, right? Because if if I'm staying at a somewhere and I have a personal connection with people that's likely going to improve my experience and my perception of the stay which is going to result in me more favorably viewing the stay and more likely to come back later. Yeah it's the same thing we've been kind of banging the drum on for quite a while where the moment the person steps on the property your job is to convince them to return to that property and the properties who do it you know definitely see an improved rate of return. Yeah, and it really ties into what we talked about in last week's episode when we talked about upselling and engaging your guests and that being really not about, the goal of that is not to drive more revenue, the goal is to increase guest satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So personalizing those interactions is a really good idea. And it could be something simple as, you know, having little stickers for the kids that you can write something on, if something, you know, ask them a question or tell them a joke or you know, just interacting with people as people, not as just guest four two nine. You know, treating people like people. I think that that can have a big impact on people's experience. Yeah, absolutely. What's next? So the next one. This is tying back to the discussions we've had regarding the OTA direct booking wars. Expedia has come out with a in a partnership with Redline to allow guests at Redline to use their loyalty program when booking through Expedia. So Expedia has partnered with Redline and said, if you book on Expedia at a Redline property, not only do you get Expedia's uh, loyalty program benefits, if you're a Redline member as well, you also get those. So you you may book through Expedia and you're earning points toward your free night at Redline. So... It's really a, a partnership. <clears throat> it's interesting, especially for smaller groups like Red Lion, who need the OTAs more and more compared to some like a massive flag. Yeah, so Red Lion, I mean, they have over 100 properties, but still, relatively speaking, to a Hilton mm-hmm. America, they're small. So the power of their loyalty program just isn't isn't the same, right? right. So doing something like this makes a lot of sense. And and to clarify, Expedia has been offering or looking for partners to, to do this for a while. Redline just happens to be the first to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Redline CMO also came out and said, well, yeah, we're exclusively doing this with Expedia now, but that's just because they're the only third-party online travel agent that offers this kind of um, benefit. So, of course, if Booking.com or Priceline or someone else came out, we'd probably do it with them as well. So I think this is probably something we're going to see a trend towards. I think a lot of smaller independent properties or small groups are going to want to do this. I think it definitely benefits the hotel because you know not only are you getting people on the, on the loyalty program, but you're also getting their contact information, mm-hmm. which has always been one of the challenges when people book through a third, third party. So. Right. I like this. I, I, you know, I don't know if it makes sense long term for Expedia to do this because, you know, I, well, I mean, I guess Expedia they're trying is, to react to the yeah. direct booking push. Yeah, and this is the only thing they can think of to try to combat that. And I mean, it's interesting the way Expedia put it is customers don't want to have to be told what they have to do to get a benefit. They want to do what they do and shop for the best price. If they find the best price, price in Expedia, they'll know that they're booking through Expedia, but they're still getting all the benefits of booking you know, direct through Red Lion, you know who really wins here is the customers. Yeah. And 
you know, with this whole booking direct war that's happening, customers are really going to be the primary beneficiaries until the, the smoke settles and we know what's going to happen. Yeah, as long as the quality of the product doesn't decrease because the profitability decreases. That's the only risk, right? right. And you get into price wars. Um, and we talked about that a little bit last week as well. All mm -hmm. right, so then finally in the news roundup, a couple of Google updates which, which are important. The first of which is the mobile-friendly designation on the search engine results page is going to be going away. Now, to give you guys some history, this came about prior to the mobile search results being separate from the desktop search results. So this was really Google's way of saying, hey, these are the results in terms of rank overall ranking. These are the sites that happen to be mobile friendly within these results, right? So when they split that and said, okay, here's your desktop search engine results and these are the rankings and here's your mobile over here and we look at different factors, a lot of the same factors but some different factors, it really negated the need to have mobile friendly because what you saw was the majority of the top 10 are going to be mobile friendly pages because otherwise they wouldn't rank in the mobile friendly algorithm, right? So in, into Google's own, um, looking at Google's own data, they say 85% of pages now are mobile friendly by their criteria. So it kind of made the mobile friendly obsolete, having that designation on there doesn't mean that you shouldn't still be mobile friendly. It doesn't mean that if you don't see it, your site is not mobile friendly. All they're doing is decluttering the search engine's results page, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, and to build on what you said about making sure your sites are still mobile friendly, they're still using those same signals to determine site ranking. You just don't get the little icon next to it anymore. But right. if everybody has the icon, that becomes useless. Like you said, this was before integrated results. This is before AMP pages. This is before a lot of stuff that is becoming best practices. So I would say more than ever, you really need to focus on you know, your mobile presence. Yeah, which leads us to this next Google update, which they've come out, and this is good fair warning, on January 10th, 2017, so they're giving us a specific cutoff date, they're going to start penalizing mobile sites that have pop-ups that get in the way of content. And, and when I say pop-ups, I mean unnecessary pop-ups, so things that are maybe collecting an email address or promoting a special or something like that. So whether that comes right when you land on the page or if as you're scrolling down the page it comes up, if that pop-up or interstitial is going to block the content on the mobile device because you've got a limited screen, you are going to start seeing a penalty for that. There are exceptions to these. These, So, for example, if it's a legal disclaimer, like in Europe where you have to say we use cookies, or if it's a site that requires an age verification or some kind of login, those are not going to get penalized. And if you have some kind of email collection or say you're promoting your mobile app and it's subtle and it's at the top and it's only taken up, say, 15, 20% mm -hmm. of the screen, that's not going to get penalized either. But, Pete, what do you think about this move from Google? Thank you, Google. This is fantastic. This helps all marketers by being able to have really one clear guidelines, but also having a concrete reason to go back to your clients and say, you do not need this. This is not the place, and we don't need to force people to click a pop-up. Uh, I find it really interesting that they did go to the extent of classifying some pop-ups as good, the little smart banners that promote apps as good but anything that's you know click here to sign up for the newsletter before you can see the content all those you know customer blocking systems you know, are going to be penalized and they should be 
Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, marketers are our own worst enemy, right? Because a lot of these technologies that are forced upon us, whether that be ad blockers, things like that, they're a result of people that are in marketing misusing what they have, you know, the mm -hmm. toolkit they have. Because if you have a mobile app, you want people to know about that, right? And you can do it through a smart banner at the top, which is perfectly fine. And we do that for our clients that use our mobile app, Guest Express. But a lot of people you'll see will do a complete screen takeover and try to force people to the mobile app with a little link at the bottom that says you don't want the mobile app, continue to the website. Yeah. And that's just not the, what the consumer was expecting when they clicked on that search result. They're looking for the website experience, the content that they were clicking on. And remember that most people aren't even landing on your homepage anymore. They're landing on lower level content. So they want that blog article or that room information or that amenity description which is directly related to the intent of their search. Yeah, I think this is going to hurt one app in particular, and that's that Tap Talk forum app. Anytime you go do a Google search and you, it comes back with a you know result that is in a forum, and you click it, the first thing you get is that screen takeover that mm -hmm. says, "Do you want to download Tap Talk to?" access this forum and you always have to hit no. Yeah, I mean, there are other big brands doing it. Like uh, Internet Movie Database, IMDB.com mm -hmm. does it. If you try to go to, you search anything online about a movie or an actor um, and you go to their site, the first thing you do is a big takeover is that. I mm -hmm. don't want that. I just want to know that I'm not going to use that app often. I just wanted to know the answer to this one question. Right. You know, so uh, hopefully, marketers, you've got plenty of time. Like I said, it doesn't kick in until January 10th, 2017. Yeah. And, and one more thing on the, the pop-ups. This helps or this prevents lazy coding. A lot of times when we see this happen, it's because somebody has a pop-up, but they never bothered to put the rules in place on their site to prevent that pop-up from showing on a mobile. Right, especially now that most people are going with this responsive design. So right. it's, it's one set of code for all, all device types. No, I agree. So that's in the news. Uh, we'll put links to all of those uh, articles in the show notes at fueltravel.com slash podcast, and you just click on episode 20. So let's get into our main topic, which is content today. And there's a lot of things we could talk about with content, so we're going to kind of do a top-level overview of a lot of it we'll probably do later episodes to deep dive into things like um, audience and personas and segmentation and stuff like that today we really want to talk about the content side of it so what is content pete yeah so content at least the way i see it is the entire web there's nothing online that is not content you know somebody created it in some form or fashion and is designed to do some type of purpose so you know me, content marketing is simply building up an information base to support your product or service, and then once it's created, telling people about it, promoting it, and driving people to you know, consume that content. Yeah, and understanding the purpose of that content, right? So you're right in terms of the web is content in whatever form it takes. But there's a purpose to every piece of content you write, and that is to get people to, to get through some kind of journey, right, mm -hmm. to, towards your ultimate goal of collecting an email address or getting them to share you on social media or getting their head in the bed. So every piece of content should be looked at with a purpose right. before, before you even start writing it or drawing it or creating it, whatever it is. And that's really important because if, if everything on the web is content, search engines only index content, people only link to content, People only share content on social networks. 
videos only content on YouTube. And really it's the only thing that a marketer, you know, even a hotel marketer who you think you're marketing hotel rooms, well, online you're really marketing content about hotel rooms. And if you know, the hotelier will kind of make that you know paradigm shift to, okay, now I am about making the best possible content for my hotel, that's how they're going to start winning at the content game and becoming more successful. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's about persuading someone that hasn't made a decision to make a decision, right? So your content's job is to sh answer people's questions, to um, sh give them information that they didn't have before, to present um, an experience or potential experience to them that they're going to desire so that they go from thinking about booking to actually booking. So right. the content throughout your site and throughout your social networks and throughout the whole internet, anything you're creating or curating, it needs to be working to persuade someone to make a decision. Yeah. And it has to be fantastic content. You know, this, if you look at it in terms of relationship, the website and the content that the customer is seeing about your hotel, that's your first impression. And everyone says the same thing. You, can only, you only have one chance to make a first impression. So you have to go out there with your best foot forward in the best content you can possibly make. You yeah. can't produce crap content. Exactly. And, you know, remember, too, that you have a lot of information about your property that other people don't. So to make an assumption that, you know, you have this awesome amenity or that you have this process that guarantees excellent customer service, whatever it is, just because you know that and because that's a fact doesn't mean other people are going to know about it. Yeah, sure, word of mouth might work and, and that'll work to a degree. But if you have some asset or some skill or some differentiator that no one else has, that's content that needs to be created and published and shared so that other people can learn about it. Right. I mean, a perfect example is, you know, something we had talked about in the past where one of our clients has an amazing bed bug remediation program. The client is the only one who knew about this for a very long time. They had an issue on search engines. In response, we helped them craft a great piece of content talking about how fantastic their bed bug policy was and how they're guaranteeing guests will never have that problem. And... You know, people consumed it like hotcakes. They loved that type of content. Exactly. And it, it can be really specific to your property or generic about the industry. But things like bed bugs is something that's relevant to every hotel. I mean, it's a legitimate concern when anyone travels. So having some kind of guarantee in proving why you can back that guarantee up is really powerful um, in terms of persuading people. So how do I know if the content I'm producing is good enough or is great? You know, I think the answer to that question is if you sat down today and you said, oh, you know what, it's Thursday and my job today is to produce content, it's a good chance you're probably going to be producing pretty bad content. You know, I think the, the way you want to gauge your content is when an audience member reads your content or watches your content, are they genuinely glad that they got there? Does it answer a question and does it go beyond answering that question to provide a little bit of enlightenment as to, you know, the, the root of the question. So, I mean, if you're genuinely proud of the content that you produced, you're excited to go out there and share it. You've probably produced great content. You've definitely bridged the gap of, you know, producing bad content, I guess. Yeah, and one of, one of the things I look at is did did it make them do something else, right? If, if I have an article about stuff going on in the area 
and someone read that, then not only should I just say, hey, here's this event, here's the dates, but maybe I should offer them a, a method to purchase tickets. Or maybe I can give them a specific discount or special for that time that they can take advantage of and track it, right? And we'll talk about tracking in a little bit. But to me, you know, when people throw away around the buzzword viral content and people will even come to us and say, I need you to create some viral content for me. And I don't think you set out to create something that goes viral, but I think understanding what makes something go viral is really important. In the way I, I've heard it best described is if you produce content that is so valuable or helpful or interesting or informative to people that you don't know and don't have a relationship with, and it's so good for them that they're willing to share it with their audience, that's when it goes viral. Because I could write a blog, and Pete might be interested in that blog, because he knows me, right? I, I wrote a blog about what I did this weekend with my family. Pete knows my family, so he says, oh, okay, I might retweet that. right? But if Joe Bloggs, who lives in Timbuktu, you know that guy? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. If he decides to share it, and I've never met the guy before, then that's when you're more likely to get something that, that just snowballs and becomes viral. Yeah. And, and I think kind of what you're hint, hinting at there is the web is full of good content, but good content is the mortal enemy of great content. And you have to always strive to, you know, the way Rand Fishkin, the co-founder of Moz, puts it, you have to produce 10x content. Yeah, I, I love that kind of philosophy. And, it, you know, don't take it literally. Like It doesn't literally, you don't have to measure quantitatively it's 10 times better than something else. But it just means go above and beyond. Go way past what other people are doing. And one of, one of the ways to do that with the 10x content is to really look at what, what the purpose of the content is. Is it trying to solve a problem or answer a specific question. And if it's answering a specific question, go to Google, type in that question, and then look at, say it's what are the best places to eat in Austin, Texas, right? Say that's the question that you're going to type in. Look at the top 10 results. Really take time to digest what every single page in that top 10 results has. Aggregate that into a single document and look at it and figure out, okay, if I want to be better, then I've got to provide more information, better information, be more well-crafted than all these combined, and use that to curate, curate and create your own new version of the content. You know, Don't plagiarize, don't just copy and paste, but look at the value that each one of those articles provides. Make sure that you provide at least that combined value and more than you're going to have 10x content. Right. And one of the great benefits of 10x content is you can't duplicate 10x content. So if you have, you know, if you look at the search results page for, you know, things to do in my area and there's nothing good there, that's where you really want to build the best possible content. If you do that search and you find someone who has already produced the definitive guide for, for things to do in your area, going up and trying to be that much better may not make sense for you. You know, it might be better to produce some other great piece of content. And that's what makes 10x content so great is your competitors are going to have a hard time competing against you on that level because you've already gone 
above, beyond, and then beyond that. Exactly, yeah. And, and putting your unique spin on it, using data that only you have, whether, you know, if it's food, again, put your own perspective on it and, and give your own anecdotes because that's something no one else can recreate because it's personal to you. And, and again, circling back, making sure there's you're taking people through a journey. So you're giving them a different perspective, perhaps, or giving them information they didn't have. Perhaps in the place to eat in Austin, you write that and you solve that problem. But you also say, and you know what? This place is only 30 minutes away from Austin. It's not actually in Austin, but here are some benefits to taking that little road trip. And there's this quaint little experience that you can have that no one else knows about. So not only are you fulfilling that, but you're also providing them with new information they didn't have before that might persuade them to change their plans and now they have have some loyalty to you because they appreciate what you did to them and again tying it back to call to actions and making sure that once you've given them all the information they know what to do next the last thing you want to do is provide great content and then the only option is for someone to go back to the search engine right you want to send them through a funnel on your site versus going back and finding someone else's content. That's so true because great content does take a lot of work and you don't want to bring someone in, answer their question above and beyond, and then only send them back. You know, if you spent that that time and effort to build the fantastic content, you built that 10x piece of content, keep them on your site and help that person through through the booking. Yeah, and Rand Fishkin, who's the guy that came out with this, coined this term 10x, he, he does a, a weekly video series called Whiteboard Fridays, and that's where we first came across this 10x concept. But we'll link to the actual video where he talks about 10x content and gives some really good examples of ways you can create 10x content, which is pretty cool. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. So how can someone produce great content? So we kind of talk generically about content. Like what what can one do if they say, okay, I buy into it. I need great content. What's the process? Yeah, I think that the first thing you're going to want to do is make a list of things that you are actually really good at that people may not be aware of. You know, the way I look at this is if you're a hotel build out your FAQ list. What are those questions that the guests are constantly asking you that they may not have an answer to? The good thing is if you notice one person asks a question, a lot of other people also have that same question. If you can answer that and answer it above and beyond, that's where you want to start building great content. Yeah, especially talk, engaging with your reservationists, right? Because if, if they're getting people picking up the phone and asking them a question... Chances are that person found the phone number from the website. So if you have that content on the website, one, you're making that customer happier because they didn't just have to make an unnecessary phone call. But two, you're saving time and money because now someone doesn't have to call your reservationist to ask the question that you could have already answered. It it just makes sense, right? So that FAQ one I really like. We'll kind of dig into that a little more deeply in a second. Yeah. So, So if you want to produce the great content, that's the first step. The next step is, and this is all action-oriented, the next step is you have to produce a, cal- a calendar and assign some responsibility. So if you know, Stuart and I are in a hotel, we come up with our FAQ list, I say, Stuart, your job is to produce X piece of content based on this FAQ item, and it's due next Thursday. Then we produce that content, we adhere to our deadlines, we publish it, we promote it, we promote it, we promote it, we promote it again and again and again. 
And then lastly, we analyze to see how well that content's performing. That gives us a lot of information because, you know, step seven in this process is after you've produced the content, you've analyzed it, you go right back up to the top and you make a list. Yeah, you figure out which of the content you already produced is working and you produce more like that. And the stuff that isn't working, well, you, you scrap that and you yeah. move on to something different. Yeah, and that, that cyclical process really is great because every time you make it through one cycle, the next round you're producing more, or should I say better content for, for your readers. Yeah, and I kind of like the rule when you're coming up with that initial list of here's the content I want to create, use the 80-20 rule. If, if you're ever in doubt in life, Stick to the 80-20 rule. It tends to apply to most things, right? So 80% of the content you create should be stuff that just makes sense. It's just obvious content that's going to be relevant to your hotel, that's going to be relevant to your consumer and your audience, and is is likely going to work. might not be the big home run, might not get national attention, but it's going to do the job of trickling in con uh, traffic, right? But spend 20% of your time thinking a little bigger than that, thinking about, you know, some content that might be a little more niche or might be a little more specialized that, that could potentially get attention outside of your safe zone audience. Yeah, that, that's dead on because the 80-20 rule says 80% of the people have, you know, a specific question. The 20%, that's almost where you could use that to, you know, find those new guests of people who haven't quite asked that question but they may have it in the back of their mind. So if you can answer that one, and you can find those you know, areas of you know, the search results where no one's really addressed it, mm -hmm. it could end up being you know, a good you know, opportunity. Yeah, and, and the 80-20 that I'm talking about there doesn't necessarily re refer to the size of the content. We'll talk mm -hmm. about that in a second, but it's more about the, the context of the con or the, right. what the, the content is about. So, for example, if I was a hotel in Austin and I could write the you know ten places to eat in Austin for under twenty dollars or whatever, I might also write like the top ten cities in the U.S. on my site and and then have a really in-depth write-up about Austin and why it's cool compared to other cities, and maybe even reach out to other hotels in those other cities to promote that content, right? Because Yes, it's a stretch. No, it's not directly t talking to my audience. But you know what? I might get a travel blogger to pick that up. I might get links from people I've never gotten links from before. So it's not the kind of stuff I want to spend a lot of time on in terms of my overall strategy. But it's it's more of that long shot stuff that if it works, it can really take off and get, add a lot of benefit. All right, so let's talk about, we kind of touched on this really, really um, a little bit, which is, the types of content that people can create. And we tend to bucket these into two categories, right? Which are the pebbles, the little kind of nuggets of content that which are, you know, can take 30 minutes or an hour to create. And then the the big rock kind of concept, the stuff that's going to take time and effort and maybe you're going to have to invest a lot of time and energy into over several weeks before it it's rolled out. And again, I would apply the 80-20 rule to this in terms of 80% of what you want to do should be the pebbles, 20% being the big rocks. But let's talk about some of the specifics. So, so when we're talking about pebbles, Pete, what are we talking about? So things that are pebbles would be your site content, you know, the amenities, descriptions, room descriptions, things along those lines. Even the FAQs, right, which we were talking about. FAQs, exactly. Uh, 
little blogs, little articles, not the you know, very in-depth articles, but it's things like the top five things to do in Austin. Yeah, or the attractions near this property, right. stuff like that. So you can also, don't just get stuck in the content is text. Content is also video. Content's Facebook Live. Content is infographics and all this other great stuff. So, you know, content is also taking your videographer, going around your property and just getting a quick video tour. Great pebble to put on your site. Yeah, or like you touched on the Facebook Live, just do it standing at the pool deck or, or at one of the amenities and talk, talking to guests, doing Facebook Live, or just telling people, hey, we've got a special coming up this weekend, check it out. Mm-hmm. Short video, doesn't have a lot of production quality, there's no editing involved. Anyone can point and shoot with an iPhone, you know, really, really easy. Yeah. That's just, Exactly, just a little piece of valuable content that you can deliver at a you know high frequency. Yeah, and then another piece of pebble would be photography, right? So you've got yes. a lot of different types of photography, some of which is is you know high production quality, but taking lots of photos of everything at the property, um, the amenities, the the rooms, obviously the property itself. But then you can also sprinkle in people having a good time, like mm-hmm. actual real people. Um, you can curate content from other people through social media or through you know tools like Flip2, which we talked about a lot on this show, where you can bring in photos from other people that have had an experience. Photography is so important. We, we recently did a study, and it's not published yet. It should be published next month. But we looked at the, the elements of a website and what really matters to people. And 90% of people said that quality photography is an important factor when determining where they're going to stay. So 90% of people, I don't know who the 10% said they don't care about photography, but regardless, photography is very, very important. Absolutely. So I mean, that, that studies, it's going to be pretty interesting when we do publish it. It leads us to a bigger form of content. Once you get beyond the pebbles, that study that we're just talking about is what we call a big rock. Yeah, for fuel, you know, our audience is isn't the consumer. It's hotels, it's other hotel mm-hmm. marketers. So for us to do a study takes a lot of work, um, but it's a big rock, right? Because mm-hmm. we'll get, get we're going to put out press release. We'll get written about in in a lot of industry journals. We'll get a lot of exposure to our potential audience. We'll get a lot of inbound links from that. And then it spawns off a lot of potential pebbles, right? Because we can write individual blog posts. We can do podcast episodes, individual podcast episodes, which are pebbles. Overall podcast would be a big rock, but individual podcast episodes on this same topic, right? So one big rock can support a lot of other pebble content. Right. And you may only have one or two big rocks a year. Uh, but the important part is, is what the Big Rock will do for you is it, it brings your team together because you do need everyone's help to produce you know, a Big Rock. It also helps you become the expert and is really what leads to the 10x content that we talked about earlier. This is that content that just can't be duplicated by a competitor. This is the great vacation planning guide that your hotel puts together takes a lot of time, takes a lot of artwork and attention to detail, but once it's done, it becomes invaluable to your guests that they're seeking it out, they're sharing it on their own will, and you know achieves that level of 
10 hooks. Yeah, I mean, it could be that vacation guide. It could be an itinerary planner. It could be a budget widget, you know, like something that you can put in how many people you have and how old they are and the kind of things you want to do. And it calculates the budget for them. So there's a lot of ideas out there you could come up with. There's a couple that I wanted to call out of, of existing hotels that have done a good job with some of this big rock stuff. So um, the first one is the standard hotels. And they created a whole spin-off site separate to their main hotel brand called standardculture.com. And it really is an in-depth magazine on the web for the destinations that they're in. I mean, they talk about events and cuisine and, and they even get journalistic in a lot of this stuff, right? So it's really not a hard sell, but these magazines online have become so popular in their destinations that it's become a brand of its own that happens to be soft pushing the hotel brand and people that are aware and consuming this information on the culture brand are now crossing over and becoming guests. So Yeah, that's when you know you've really hit hit the mark is when your content is valuable as a standalone item and it's not something that just supports your business. It's a it's almost of a business in itself where it's so valuable that people seek that out. And as a result, they get pushed to your property. Exactly. And then another example would be the Ritz-Carlton. And they, they do a lot of great content. But one of my favorite big rocks that they did, and this is, this is a little while ago, but they did the Art of the Craft series. It was a video series where they really um, pulled back the curtain to show people behind the scenes of why they do what they do and how much the guest experience means to the staff. So it was a, essentially framed around the perspective of the staff. So talking to housekeepers or chefs or, you know, the, the front desk reservations and talking to them and having them tell their story of why they do what they do and why it's important and how they personally impact the experience that the guest has. And it was really, really good, really compelling, very moving. We'll link to, to some of those videos on the show notes as well. But those are just some ideas of, a couple of the big rocks that you could throw out there. Yeah, and once you've created all this content, then the question becomes, well, how do you promote all the work that you've done? And, you know, that that's a tough question because, you know, the other half of content marketing is the word marketing, and you have to put a lot of effort into that. Yeah, I mean, there's no point putting out content if no one's going to see it, right? It just doesn't make sense. And, and, you know, social media is obviously a great channel for that. Press releases... Are a good way to promote it. You want to try to get organic search rankings, um, but I think a lot of a lot of people make the mistake, and I've seen this a lot. Of they write a blog post and they tweet it, or they put it on Facebook, and they think they've promoted it, right? Right. But I really like the analogy that you've used a lot, Pete, which is that the audience is a parade, right? They're not all standing still the whole time. So who you're talking to now is different than who you're talking to tomorrow or even at 2 p.m. the same day because they're constantly moving. Right. So you have to continuously reach out, and, and it's okay to be repetitive. It's okay to promote the same article a dozen times over a couple of weeks. And, and you have to because, like, everyone's you know Twitter feed or Facebook you know page, whatever it might be, there's constant, it's constantly being refreshed with new information. And if user A goes on in the morning, you have to make sure that you're front and center for that customer. 
if the next guy comes on in the afternoon, you have to be in front of that guy as well. So, yeah, I think this is where automation really becomes your friend. You know, setting up systems, you know, whichever platform you decide to use to trigger your automatic tweets, your Facebook posts and whatnot, but schedule them out and make sure that every time someone goes to, you know, Facebook or Twitter, that they're able to be exposed to your message. Yeah. And then think about the channels or the the platforms and the audience, right? Because not every piece of content is going to be targeting the right, the same group of people. So try to match up the content and the audience with the platform. So if, if you're targeting, you know, retired people, you know, boomers, you probably don't need to push that content out on Snapchat. Right. Right. But if you're targeting millennials, maybe even Gen X's, that's probably a platform you want to invest in. Or if you're looking at, say, hey, I'm really going after foodies, you know, you're probably going to have more success with that on Twitter where there's some really hyper-focused niche um, fandom versus, say, Facebook, which is a more generic platform. Right? I'm not saying don't promote it on all platforms. I'm just saying think about the messaging and the audience related to the content you're putting. But definitely in. spend the time and just like you produce the content calendar, produce your promotions calendar and adhere to both of those equally. Uh, social, I mean, social and organic promotions are only part of the game though. There's a lot of success to be had by promoting your content via paid exposure. Well, there's a, there's a lot of opportunities for paid, right? And, and again, it comes down to audience, where they're going to be and how you want to do it. So, you know, Facebook has... You can boost posts. You can have native advertising. Twitter, you can promote the tweets. Exactly. And then what we've also seen is even going beyond the true social platforms. You know, AdWords is a fantastic place from a display perspective to promote content. We do that pretty you know, often on the fuel site specifically to where if someone visits our site, then we're looking for that customer throughout the web and serving up our ads you know, in line with whatever native content that they're consuming. Right, and it can be a relevant ad based on what they did, right? So if right. they can't come and download our travel study, then we might promote the podcast because then we can reach them every week, et cetera. Exactly. Um, one of the other paid options, which I really have become a fan of, I think is for me, I, I get caught in this a lot when I'm consuming the web, but it's, it's kind of that related content network, right? And there's a couple of ways to get into that. But basically what this is, is when you're reading an article on a website and you get to the bottom, then you'll see like three or nine different articles that are relevant to what you just read at the bottom. And you can use, you know, Yahoo has its Gemini platform to publish to those kind of things. There are other third parties like Outbrain that do the same thing. But if you have interesting broad reach content, that can be a really cost effective way to drive eyeballs to that content. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all that leads back to, you can do all the paid exposure you want, you can do all the organic exposure, but at the end of the day, you have to know what's working. Yeah, tracking is critical in everything we do from a marketing perspective. We wanna know the ROI, we wanna know what is working. And, and making sure you're focused on the right metrics, right? Because just because you're getting traffic doesn't mean it's the right kind of traffic. You want to make sure that ultimately those people that are coming are doing what you need them to do. Signing up for an email, following you on social, booking a hotel room, whatever that might be. Yeah, and, and, and to that reason, I like to always suggest you use at least two forms of analytics. The first one being 
you know, things like Google Analytics, Adobe Analytics, you know, tools that you can see once people come from, say, Twitter into your site, what they do, if they book, and, you know, how long they stay. But then also look at the platform-specific analytics. Twitter Analytics is an amazing resource that I don't think enough people use, but it will show you specifically, you know, what tweets that you've, you know, sent out in the past perform the best, who your top followers are, you know, what you set, what content you share that is most liked by, you know, your followers. Looking at that content really does help you decide what you want to produce in the future. Yeah, looking at what works and what doesn't. You know, my 10-year-old son is, is big on uh, Musical.ly. It's, you know, it's a social platform for sharing little short videos. and it, It's really popular with the kids. And, uh, you know, he started to think strategically about what he produces because he's looking at which content he does gets more shares or more likes. So he he's doing that adjustment that marketers need to do. You know, if you're pushing out content on a platform that's getting no likes, no shares, it's probably you, you need to rethink the message, right? And that could be just in how you word it. It could be in the, the subject line, which is a critical component when you're sharing organically. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, too, that the part of the success is getting people to share it, right? Not necessarily always read it. There was a recent study that was put out that showed that 60% of people that share content don't even read the article, right? Because a lot of times people, especially on a, on a platform like Twitter, they're retweeting stuff to make them look like more of an authority in, in the, whatever mm-hmm. the industry is, right? So part of it is having a catchy subject line that's not only clickbait, but it's sharebait as well. It's something that people are willing to put their name behind and share, even if they haven't read the article. So you want to be concise, um, but very specific in the subject lines. Yeah, and it's always shocking when you see that you had more shares than clicks. Yeah, <laughs> you know, on a, on, a, on a tweet. So, so uh, I guess yeah, that's a, a lot of information. Content marketing is a massive subject. I mean, what are some of the next steps for you? Know, if you're a hotel, what what do you need to do? Yeah, I mean, if you're still kind of getting your head around this and you don't you don't know what to do next, I think Pete's advice would be the one thing I would say, if you take nothing else from this episode, do it. Go write down all your frequently asked questions. Talk to the people that answer the phones and at the front desk and and just spend an hour or two brainstorming every single question you get asked related to your property. And then one at a time, just pick one. It doesn't matter which one. Just pick one of them and really thoroughly think out how to best answer that question with the mindset of trying to be 10x. Mm-hmm. Look at who people that have asked that question on, online. Look at the results when you type that in online. And then really try to create the best version of that response that you can. Yeah. And, you know, when you go through your FAQs, there's going to be a lot of pebbles. There are going to be some big rocks in there that you can really latch on to. Uh, and this, this really just kind of came to me, but... If you're getting the entire group together to talk about your FAQs and you're pushing the idea of 10x content, expand that to your operations. You know, what can your front desk staff do to deliver 10x service? What can your housekeeping do to deliver, you know, 10x care to their guests' rooms? You know, it's a it's something you really can apply to all facets of the the business. Yeah, no question. So I I think to, you know, to leave you guys with a final thought there's a couple of things I would say. One is you just have to do it. You know, we are in a lot of cases, our biggest 
obstacle when it comes to content. It took fuel a long time to really get a good content strategy going. You know, we talked about doing a podcast, we talked about doing studies, we talked about doing white papers, but it wasn't until we just stopped talking about it and started doing it that it actually happened. And then what we found was, well, you know what, this is actually working and it encouraged us and we did more and we do more. And that's why this podcast exists today. It wouldn't if we hadn't done it. And one of the biggest barriers that people have is their inner critic. But there's a lot of self-doubt, especially if you're not trained in writing. You know, is my grammar good? Is my spelling good? Well, you know what? Have someone that is good at that stuff proofread your stuff. It's okay. And just start small. Tell your inner critic to shut up. If he doesn't shut up, punch him in the face. Give him a name. Identify that he exists and acknowledge that he exists. And then just say, I know there's an inner critic, but that is just a thought in my head. It's not a fact. I'm just going to go out and do it. Just, just go to your computer right now after you listen to this and write down a couple of those questions and start writing the answers and then publish that on your website. Yeah, and the hardest step is really the first one because once you've done it a few times, then your mind shifts and you're constantly thinking about how I can put this on the web. Uh, the other big benefit is if this is the first time you've ever produced content, you don't have an audience. Literally nobody cares that first time you post it. So that gives you the basically the training wheels to start producing content, improving it, improving it, and improving it. And if you go back and you look at your very first one, you say, hey, this is crap. I don't want to promote this anymore. You can update that article. You know, I wouldn't necessarily suggest taking it down unless it was really horrible, mm-hmm. but make it better. You know, the web is a fluid environment. It's not printed and left in stone. You can you can change. Yeah. And, and just start small. You know, Rome was not built in a day. So just do one article at a time. And then if, if you're happy with that, do second, do a third, do a fourth, and then do some photos and videos. Just take it one step at a time and you'll be fine. And, yeah. you know, if you need help with any of this, you can reach out to your friends here at Fuel um, via FuelTravel.com or on Twitter at FuelTravel. So, Pete, where can they reach you on the web? They can reach me on Twitter. I'm at P-D-I-M-A-I-O. P-D-I-M-A-I-O. And you can reach me at Stuart Butler, S-T-U-A-R-T-B-U-T-L-E-R. And you can reach us collectively at Fuel Travel or FuelTravel.com. And you have been listening to the Fuel Hotel Marketing Podcast. I can do a fantastic elephant impression.